Well, we are so excited to be with you today. Thank you for gathering with us in person and online. Uh, Every week, we're going to spend time opening up the Scriptures together, and so that's what we're going to do now. We do this because we believe that the Scriptures speak with the authority and relevance of Jesus himself. And so we want to invite you, whether you're a seasoned student of the Bible or whether you're really new to investigating who Jesus is, We want to get you in the habit of opening up the scriptures and seeing what the scriptures have to say about him. We want to go back to the sources. And so this summer, we've been studying stories of the king. It's a time of great unrest and craziness in our world. And we all long to have good leaders, but we've all been let down repeatedly in our family life, in our political life, in all kinds of ways. We've been let down by the leaders around us. But Jesus is the great and perfect leader that we've all been looking for. And so we want to spend time this summer looking at these great stories of the king. This week we're going to be in another story of the king from Matthew chapter 18. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up your Bible to Matthew chapter 18. The story that Autumn read from the Jesus Storybook Bible compiles a lot of insight from Matthew 18, but also other places that discuss this concept of greatness. So the title of the sermon today is How to Become Great. How to become great. Jesus is going to answer this question. It comes up actually many times with his disciples. His disciples seem to really want to be great. Um, Most people think the disciples were very young men, kind of between teen and early 20s. And I was remembering this week a time in my life as a teenager, kind of like right as I was becoming a man, my uh, junior, senior year in high school, where I was really obsessed with greatness. Um, I don't know what all the different influences in my life were, but, but these all came together to a, a focus where I determined that I was going to work with the system of salvation that was offered to me as a young man in a Texas town, and that system of salvation was called Texas football. I don't know if you're familiar with this religion, but that was my religion as a teenager. Um, and within that religion, uh, my coaches, uh, the leaders of this faith, continued to tell me that what I really needed to do to become great was to become physically great, right? Like bigger. <laughs> Look at me. I wasn't big enough. And so I was determined to, to gain 20, 30 pounds, to get stronger, to become physically greater so that I could become someone that mattered, right? And so I really devoted myself, worked harder uh, by far than most, or probably a few people that worked harder than me, but I was very hard working. I lifted weights. I ate every moment that I could of the day, ate as much as I possibly could. I devoted myself to greatness. I'd set this particular goal uh, that would kind of show me that I had arrived, and that was a particular goal on bench press. And my junior year, I came within 20 pounds of meeting my goal, right? And I was like, hey, I'm a junior. I've still got more time, one more year. I think I'm going to make it. And right after we tested, we would do these tests on our weights and running and everything to kind of see where we stood so we could rank each other, compare ourselves with each other, and and know who was the greatest, right? And so I had tested 20 pounds within my goal of what I had determined would would achieve greatness for Dave McMurray. Um, And then we had our spring football game, and there was this loud pop in my shoulder, um, and if you don't know anything about bench press, your shoulder is an important piece of, of bench pressing, right? And so that set me back uh, years in my bench press goals. I never achieved that goal. God and his grace allowed me to fall short of ever achieving that goal. Um, I came close a couple more times and got re-injured a couple more times over the years. 
Um, as I look back on that now, I'm so thankful because that drove me, along with a lot of other circumstances in my life of pain and difficulty, that drove me to ask the question of, is there another way to become great? Maybe football's not it. Maybe bench pressing is not it. Maybe gaining 30 pounds is not the way. These things that I've been devoting myself weren't really working out. Maybe there's another road to greatness. I got to hear a speaker that same summer at a camp, a Christian camp, who showed me the way. And the way is found in our text today. So I want to read the text straight from Jesus, how we can become truly great. So Matthew 18, verse 1 says, At that time the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? In other passages throughout the Gospels, if you cross-reference this, there are other places where they're comparing themselves and saying that one of them is the greatest or greater than the other. Here it seems like a more general question, right? Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Verse 2, And calling to him a child, Jesus, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So these strong young men who had given up everything to follow Jesus, who were trying to be brave and, and great and important, said, how can we be the greatest? And Jesus says, become like this little child. Humble yourself. Jesus goes on in verse 5. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it's necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Jesus says it is not the will of the Father that little ones should perish. He says the way to become great is to become a little one, to throw ourselves at the mercy of the Father. As we look through the text, I'm going to give you kind of an overview of the outline. We're going to see that Jesus calls on us, if we want to become great, to convert to humility. That's the entry point. He talks about entering the kingdom of heaven. He says, you've you got to be humble. You've got to become like a little child. Convert to humility. The second thing we'll see is that we should not trip up the humble. We should have a special guardedness and care for the humble in our midst, for the little ones. And then finally, we should rejoice in the humble, just like our Heavenly Father does. That story of the lost sheep. He rejoices in the humble. He delights in the humble. We shouldn't despise the little ones. We shouldn't despise the humble ourselves. So let me pray for us and ask God to help us to hear from him this morning, from his word. I'll pray that God would meet us here. Let's pray. God, we pray that you would teach us. 
God, I pray especially for those of us that think we know the truth. Will you continue to humble us? Will you continue to teach us? God, I pray for the special, supernatural, spiritual gift of open-mindedness. God, you know how hard-hearted we are that we think we've got it figured out. Or maybe we think that it can't be figured out. But Lord, we're giving you right now, we're asking you to take control of that dynamic in our hearts. We're asking you to show us what is true and what can be true. We pray that your spirit would apply your word, would help us to see it and understand it and hear it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the outline is, is convert to humility. First step, right? He talks about entering. This conversion, entering, turning, he says. Uh, then don't trip up the humble. Uh, in the ESV, it talks about causing someone to sin. The word there is a tripping kind of word. Uh, when it comes to causing to sin, you might see that in different translations. Uh, tripping up or causing someone to fall or stumble is the way it's translated sometimes. So we don't want to trip up the humble or the little ones. And then finally, we want to rejoice in the humble, the same way that God the Father does. So first step, we want to convert to humility. We see this in verses 1 through 4. So Matthew 18, verses 1 through 4, we should convert to humility. Um, to become great, you've got to convert to smallness. Do you see the paradox there? Um, like a lot of great teachers, Jesus is using what you might consider a riddle. We talked before last week about parables, right? Jesus uses these things that kind of make you wonder, right? Like, that's, that's upside down, Jesus, or that's backwards, Jesus. That's not what I expected, Jesus. And this is one of the reasons that the religious people of the day wanted Jesus to be killed. They couldn't stand the way he spoke. They were jealous of those who followed him. And so we just see this pattern where Jesus kind of messes with our minds. He turns things around backwards. So we're saying, Jesus, I want to be great. And Jesus says to us, become small. Become like a little kid. Be humble. Convert to humility. Um, there's a phrase here in the text in verse 3. It says, turn. Turn. That's a pretty literal. Other translations have different ways of saying that, convert, transform, change, right? Text says turn. I'm using convert because I want to get you thinking about this idea of faith systems. Jesus is challenging us to turn, convert from one faith system to another. So all human beings have a current faith system that could be generalized as self-salvation. Two classifications of self-salvation when you look at human beings, you just kind of look out into the world and you can break them into two secondary categories and say there's the self-salvation of following your own heart and doing what feels good. We call that kind of the non-religious branch of humanity. We're just going to party. We're going to enjoy pleasure. We're going to do what seems good. Try not to hurt people, but basically look out for ourselves. Kind of the romantic ideal. Then there's the religious classification of self-salvation. We kind of try to follow traditional culture, do what our parents say, do what society says, keep the rules, be good. And then we're like, God, you owe me because I've been good, right? These are two classifications of self-salvation. And in a sense, there are two ways of human beings trying to be great on our own. Jesus says, give that up. You can't be great on your own. The way to greatness is to give that up, to convert from those systems and to turn to humility, to become like a little child that can't save himself. A little child that comes to the bedside in the middle of the night and says, I had a bad dream, Daddy. That's what Jesus calls on us to become like. So turn, verse 3, 
And then he says in verse 4, humble yourself like a little child. And all this is in the context of, what does he say in verse 3? Otherwise, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Right? So again, think of the two general categorizations, uh, classifications of humanity. One class says, we enter heaven through just pleasure, right? Whether that's uh, drugs, sex, money, whatever, whatever it is, right? That's heaven. And he's like, no, you're not even going to enter real heaven apart from becoming like a child, becoming desperate, opening your hands up, saying, I need you, God. The other way we think we're going to enter heaven is by religious strictness, being good, being faithful, doing the right things. And Jesus is like, yeah, that, that's not working out either. He points this out with the religious leaders of his day repeatedly. The Pharisees, the Jewish leaders, were constantly thinking they were better than other people, so they were entering the kingdom of heaven by their betterness, by their goodness, by their greatness and strength. And he says, no, you've got to become small, humble, little, like a child, or you'll never even enter the kingdom. I grabbed a picture online of a motorcycle turning in the sand. Do you have that picture? There it is. Hard turn. Any of you ever done that? Like, maybe not on a motorcycle. I've never done that on a motorcycle. It would terrify me. I have ridden a motorcycle a couple times, and I just kind of did this and went really slow, right? But maybe you've done it on a bicycle. You're like, you're skidding out. You're turning. It's a hard turn. That's what I was trying to illustrate, this hard turn, a dramatic change of direction. That's why I'm using the word conversion. I'm, I'm purposely trying to use a religious system word here. Jesus is telling you, no matter where you grow up, no matter where you come from, no matter who you think you are, he's telling you, it's not enough. Turn from that and become like a helpless baby. Say, I can't do it. I need your help. That's the first step of the 12 steps. Alcoholics Anonymous, um, Narcotics Anonymous, Celebrate Recovery, a lot of different uh, ministries and programs use the 12 steps. First step is like, I can't do it. You've got to get to a point where you're like, I can't do it. Have you ever heard the definition of crazy is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results, right? Jesus says, okay, admit it. Admit your powerlessness. Turn, convert to this new system. This new system is a system of grace. So some parallels throughout Scripture. Here, we're contrasting the words greatness and humility, right? Greatness and humble is what I'm contrasting. Or big man and little child. You might have that image in your mind too because Jesus is talking to these big macho fishermen and he's like, you've got to become like a little baby child. And so here's some other contrasts in Scripture. Repeatedly, the Scriptures say, Old Testament and New Testament, don't trust in your flesh. Don't trust in your flesh. What that means is your, your physicality, your abilities, it can even stretch to mean uh, your smarts, how impressive you are, how you can figure things out, maybe how charming you are. Don't trust in your physical strengths, in the strengths that you were born with. Give up trusting in those and trust in the Spirit. Trust in God instead. And then another distinction that's made is often between grace and works. Don't think you can work your way to heaven or merit entrance into heaven. Romans 6.23 says, what we merit, the wages we earn, if we're going to work in the wage system, if you want to earn something, the wages of sin is death. That's the earning system that all humanity has inherited. If we're just going to do strict earning, I can do this on my own. Y'all ever, anybody here had a two-year-old says, no, I can do it? 
If you've ever had a kid do that, it's, it's pretty funny. And it, it's part of proper growth, right? Sometimes you've got to let them do it on their own so they can learn, right? But sometimes they cannot do it. And you just kind of have to figure out what to do. Like, I know you can't do it. Maybe I'll let you try and scream and cry some more. I don't, you know, the, it varies moment by moment what to do as a parent. But that's kind of what we're like. We're like, no, God, I can do it. No, God, I can save myself. No, God, I can be great. And Jesus is saying, no, turn, convert, become like a little child, recognize that you need me. So we've got this flesh spirit thing. We've got this kind of works or law keeping versus grace. Grace is God's unmerited favor given to us. So this is clarified in Romans. We talk a lot about the Roman road. So I just talked about Romans 6.23 that says there's the wage system where you earn on your own. That gets you sin and death. But there's this free gift of grace in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so you can, as a child, in humility, trust in the grace of Jesus. Or you can say, no, I'll do it. And you do it on your own your own strength, your own form of greatness, your own self-salvation. And as you do that, the Bible warns that what you earn there is death. That, that doesn't work out. Proverbs sometimes repeats itself. The book of Proverbs says there's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. And then just like a few verses later, it repeats itself. There's a way that seems right to a man, and in the end it leads to death. And this is not just males. There's a way that seems right to humanity, right? There's a way that seems right to people, but in the end it leads to death. And Jesus is like, I'm right here. I'm right here. Turn and trust. So Romans 3.23 characterizes it this way. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're going to see another word for sin here in a minute, the, the tripping, stumbling word in the next section. But I want to key on this definition here sin, two different ways it's described. One is just missing the mark. It's like missing the bullseye. And that's the way sin is described in most places in the New Testament. There's this other stumbling word we'll see in the next section. But it's just missing perfection. So Romans 3.23 defines it this way. All have sinned, missed the mark, and fallen short of the glory of God. What that means is that you know and I know we have this incredible potential. Human beings are amazing. We are incredible, but we are guilty because we don't live up to that potential. We are guilty and wrong because we have this incredible capacity to love and show justice and kindness and care and compassion, and we hold back and say, I'm just going to take care of me. And God says that is falling short of the glory of God and the glory that we were made to reflect because we were made to reflect God's glory. And that's what sin is not living up to the perfection God has made us for. And so we're all guilty of that. The question is, are you going to recognize your guilt? Are you going to recognize that you can't become great on your own and you need God's help? Because that is the first step, admitting you're powerless, recognizing you can't be great, recognizing your need of him. Jesus says part of that process is turning and becoming like a little child, converting to humility, saying, God, I can't do this. The word humility is uh, literally kind of like being low, right? So it's a contrast. There's greatness and there's humility. Greatness is, is being big. I want to fill up the room. I want to dominate. And Jesus says, that's never really worked out for human beings. The way to true greatness is to become low. The, the open hands of faith. Turning from being an impressive man and saying, I'm just a little child before you, God. Are you ready to come to that point? So I said earlier from my own story, God in his grace allowed me to fail in some ways that woke me up to my neediness of God. 
it scares me to think like what happens or what would have happened if I'd met all my physical goals? Like what would have happened if I just kept becoming greater and more successful? I, I don't know. I'm thankful that God let me fail. I'm thankful that things kind of fell apart in my life. Right now we're going through a crazy time in our culture where things seem to be falling apart. And we need to be careful about this. Of course, we grieve and lament when things are broken. I mean, I was sad when my life fell apart, and that's appropriate and right to be sad when failures happen, when injuries come, when things break down. So it's right and good that we would grieve and cry and be sad about the current situation in our country and in the world, pandemic, unrest, chaos. We should be sad about that. But there's, there is something good and beautiful about all the things that we've been relying on in the past being stripped away. There's like a, a crystallizing clarity right now for me that I cannot trust in the way I used to do church because that's not working anymore. I cannot trust in the way I used to do social interactions because that's not working anymore. I cannot trust in our political system because that's not working anymore. I cannot trust in uh, economic prosperity in our world because that's not working anymore. I can only trust in Jesus. And so, again, we want to be careful as Christians. We don't want to become the kind of people that are like, when bad things happen, say they're good. That's crazy, right? (laughs) But good things can come out of the bad things. The pain can drive us more clearly to see, God, I need you. I'm like a little baby. (laughs) Can you help me? So I want to invite you personally to turn, whether you've never turned to Jesus at all, or if you've already turned to Jesus, to to keep turning over more and more of your heart to him. Say, Jesus, I know you're my Savior ultimately, but I recognize that every day I need to turn more of my life to you. Some of you have never made that initial turn, that conversion, that recognizing that you can't save yourself and saying, Jesus, only you can save me. And I want to invite you to make that turn. You don't have to walk an aisle or do a special dance. You merely tell this to God. You say, God, I recognize that the ways I've been trying to save myself in the past are not working. I want to give myself to you. I want to invite you to make that exchange with God. It's it's good to then out yourself and talk about it with friends and say, yeah, I told him. I, I invited him to save me. I told him I couldn't save myself and I needed him to save me. Recognizing that Jesus is your only hope is is this very personal thing that you can do. You just tell him silently. You can just say, God, I need you. Save me. Thank you that you sent Jesus to die on the cross for me. That can be private, but, but then tell other people about it. Invite them to help you. Because it's not easy to continue to walk in humility. It's a hard road. And that really takes us to the next section. We're called on to not trip up the humble. So again, this phrase can be said in a lot of different ways. In our text... Uh, The ESV keeps using the word cause to sin or sin um, because, again, this is another way of saying sin, but there's two predominant words. One one word for sin is like miss the mark. This other word that they translate as sin is often in other translations translated as stumble or trip or trap or snare. Uh, My friends and I used to have these forts in the woods, and sometimes we would put out trip wires and then we would dig a little hole and put mud in it and cover it over with leaves. And then we'd like run through with a friend who hadn't been there before. He'd trip over the, that was terrible and evil, right? So the ESV would define that as sin, right? We called it a tripwire, right? So I just want you to get a, a physical picture of what, what this was. 
They weren't really hurt. They just got a little mud on their face, right? It was okay, but still, that was terrible of us to do. He's saying we shouldn't do that to each other, right? We shouldn't trip people up. It's in the context, this bigger context of spiritual things, and that's why the ESV uses the word sin. Don't trip people up. We have to build an entire culture, this is what he's saying to his disciples, that reinforces love and care for the humble and for the little ones. He's saying, do not trip up the little ones. Do not cause my little children to stumble. How dare you even consider that? He's using very strong language here. Don't trip up the humble. So verse 5, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Okay, good start. This is what we want to do. We want to be a place of welcoming. That's the opposite of tripping up the humble. It's a place of welcoming the humble. Loving little ones. We want to build a culture, a church, that says we're about welcoming people who are humble and need Jesus. We want to do that together. Verse 6, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin or stumble or trip or be ensnared, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Now, because if most of you aren't first century people that use millstones, a millstone would be like a giant stone the size of the stage, right? Maybe a little smaller, maybe a little bigger. But they were giant stone wheels that would like grind uh, wheat and stuff. So he's saying a giant boulder. Be better to be like strapped to a boulder and thrown into the water. That would be better for you than to cause little humble ones to trip up to sin. This is really serious. This is a big deal. And then he goes on and he starts applying it even to yourself. Don't even cause yourself to trip up or sin, right? Verse 7, woe to the world for temptations to sin or to be tripped up. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. So transition verse there. He's like, don't do this to the little ones. And then he's like, man, woe, watch out, be careful to the world that the world, there's enough trips, there's enough sin inducements, there's enough temptations, there's enough stumbling already out there, but woe, watch out, be careful to the one that would add to it. Is the world broken? Yeah, the world's broken, but man, don't make it more broken. Do not add to it. That's what he's saying here. Verse 8, if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. Sorry, I know this is grotesque. I believe Jesus is using hyperbole, but he's using the most grotesque language to wake us up. It's like a slap in the face. Like, wait, Jesus, you can't really mean that. But maybe he means throwing away your computer. Maybe he means quitting your job. Maybe he means never talking to that person again that is ensnaring you in sin constantly. Maybe he means taking really evasive what seems dangerous and crazy to you, maybe he means taking that kind of action. Just cut it off. If your hand causes you to sin, your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. Throw it away. It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into eternal fire. Again, this is the contrast of worldly greatness and spiritual greatness. Worldly greatness is like collect all you can, make yourself bigger, become stronger, have more stuff, have more pleasure. He's like, that might actually hurt you. That might actually damn you to hell because you're seeking salvation in those things instead of in God the Father. He says it's better to be lame, to enter life. He's talking about eternal life. It's better to enter into the next life, the resurrection life, lame and beat up 
then to be thrown into the eternal fire. Verse 9, if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. So I look back on my own life, I'm like, better to have a bum shoulder than to go to hell. You know, I'm thankful. Thankful that I recognized young, early, I couldn't save myself. Better to be with Jesus than to have everything I've ever dreamed of in this world and miss Jesus. So he says, we want to build this kind of culture in how we treat little ones, other people, and in how we treat even ourselves. We want to take it very seriously. We don't want to trip up the humble, whether that's ourselves or, or others. Um, this word, hell of fire, um, this word is Gehenna, which was uh, literally in Jerusalem, a place outside of Jerusalem where horrible things had happened in the history of Israel. So like, if you go back and trace the geography and the history and stuff, terrible things had happened there, just grotesque things, evil things, and it had become the trash dump outside of Jerusalem. And so you could, you know, Jesus might be saying this, and if they were in the Jerusalem area, they could look out and see smoke rising on the horizon, depending on how far away they were. And they might even be able to smell the stench. It was a place of refuse, trash, dead bodies, nastiness, right? And it just smelled bad, and there was always a fire burning. It was just always smoldering. And that repeatedly is the language that Jesus used for what we call hell. So imagine a burning trash pile. Um, yesterday, my wife and I discovered there was something dead in our attic, and it smelled terrible. We'd kind of like narrowed it down to one section. I have one of those houses that's got like different attic sections, you know, kind of broken up in different places. So I kind of found where it was, went up there into what felt like the eternal fire of a summer attic, right? It's, you know, 130 degrees on a summer afternoon, so hot. I lost about 10 pounds just for the hour I was up there looking for the dead thing, right? I'm sniffing around, following this terrible smell, trying to find it so I can eliminate it because it's so grotesque. Well, Gehenna, this place outside of Jerusalem, was a thousand times worse than that. This is just one dead thing in my attic, right? This was a smoldering fire of trash and nastiness that just was there all the time. And Jesus says, spiritually, that's where we are headed if we don't take all this seriously. So I just want to recognize on the one hand, man, I know that if you're a modern person, this is ridiculous, right? This is ridiculous by modern standards. But Jesus said it was real. I just really want to challenge you to say, who is Jesus? What was Jesus about? I'm going to get to know Jesus before I decide what doctrines can be true and cannot be true. Just recognize that you have cultural blind spots and I have cultural blind spots. We always come to the Bible saying, I'll read the Bible as long as it agrees with me. And that's a really dangerous way to live your life because you're just going to keep feeding your own blind spots. Can you recognize your neediness? Can you recognize your own humility? Can you recognize that you haven't really figured out life, so maybe you need to pay attention to what Jesus has to say? So I want to encourage you to consider what Jesus has to say on this subject. It's a horrifying subject, but Jesus says there's an easy way out of it. There's a super easy way out of that, and that's just to say, God, help me. That's it. It's that easy. God, help me. He's saying the people that say, God, I don't want you. God, I'd rather spend eternity without you. He's saying, that's suffering. Being without God for eternity is suffering. It's horrible. 
And that's what Jesus is trying to communicate here. So he's telling us to take sin seriously, to take tripping seriously, to take scandal and uh, stumbling seriously. Not to cause that in little ones' lives and not to cause that in our own life. And so this is a strange tension here. This whole section is all about little ones and children and becoming small and desperate. And then right here in the middle, he's like, but be careful, this is serious. He has these scary warnings. Better for you to have a boulder tied around your neck and thrown in the water than to cause a little one to stumble into sin. Better for you to maim yourself than to cause yourself to sin. Saying, remain humble. And I want to tie it back to this humility versus greatness idea. Sin, stumbling, is pride, ultimately. Sin and stumbling and falling short of the glory of God, not doing what God tells you to do, is pride, is a human self-greatness, where you say, I know what to do and God doesn't. It's where you say, I will be God, and how dare God try to tell me what's right and wrong. And so that's how this all connects. So some suggestions for us right now in this strange time. A lot of us, man, we are, we are just like locked in online, right? The internet is becoming our world, but the internet can be a huge temptation to sin. The internet can be a huge place that causes us to stumble. If you're struggling with temptations towards lust or pornography, man, maybe you need to just cut it off. Maybe you need to get some accountability software put onto your devices. You know what? That'll make your devices not work as well. Yeah, it's worth it. Better to have a maimed device than to go to hell, right? Maybe you need to take things more seriously. Maybe I need to take things more seriously. Are there things on social media that are just working you up, that are just making you angry or making you afraid, causing you emotionally to sin when you should just maybe fast from social media or set it aside or limit it? What are the things in your life that you need to limit, you need to cut off, say, I'm not going to do that anymore, I'm going to take this seriously? What are the things that Jesus is calling on you in humility as a little child to say, yeah, that's dangerous that's going to hurt me. I'm going to depend more directly on my heavenly Father instead of, direct, uh, instead of depending on these other things that I think will comfort me and save me. Take it seriously. Be willing to cut those things out of your life. And again, to clarify, we're not saved by cutting things out of our life. Jesus is just clarifying that those things that you need to cut out cannot save you. That's what he's emphasizing here. Those things that are causing you to sin, cannot save you. As a matter of fact, they will destroy you and they will destroy me. So again, we're not saved by the act of cutting them out. We're not saved by our great self-discipline. We're saved. We enter the kingdom of heaven by turning, becoming like a little child and saying, God, I can't do it. Help me. So again, I want to bring you back to that point. Turn and ask Jesus for help. The last point is the way the Father rejoices in the humble. And so Jesus has shared some really scary stuff here. He's like, be careful, you're going to go to hell, you're going to have a boulder tied around you. No, he's like, this is violent, scary, crazy stuff. We're not used to Jesus saying even. And then he comes back to a position of rejoicing and how the Father rejoices in us as little ones. And so we, in the same way, should rejoice in little ones. So he, he brings us back around to the kindly gentle, loving view of our Father. Look at verse 10. 
see, uh, 18.10, see that you do not despise one of these little ones. So don't look down on them, right? Don't look down on little ones. For I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Uh, This verse 11 is uh, one of these verses that sometimes people point to to say that we all have like a guardian angel. Have you ever heard that teaching before? It's kind of a strange like Christian folklore teaching. It's not really biblical. I'm not saying it's like evil and wrong. It's not anti-biblical, but like if you only have one vague verse for doctrine, it's probably not the best doctrine, right? That would be my, my opinion. But that's kind of where this comes from, this idea that there's like someone watching over every little one, all of us, right? Watching, guarding us. And I don't know that it is teaching this like one-to-one relationship of one angel guarding you all the time, but it is teaching this general idea of the angels of God watching out for us, right? What it's teaching is this general idea of like God is watching over us. God cares. So to say it more starkly, how dare you despise little ones because God is guarding and watching over the little ones. He cares for them. And then Jesus is going to give an illustration that makes it even more clear. Verse 12, what do you think if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. You you see that? What's the will of the Father? The will is that none of us should perish. He just spent this scary middle section talking about perishing, right? Watch out because sin will kill you. You will perish. Sin will destroy you. Turning from God will destroy you. And he comes back around and he's like, but just be clear. Your heavenly father does not want you to be destroyed. He loves you. That's what Jesus is trying to say here. Do you see God as this father that wants you to be destroyed? God doesn't want me to have fun, so he hates me. Or do you see that he loves you? He does not want you to be destroyed. The reason he tells you not to sin is because it's destructive, because it will hurt you. He doesn't want any of his little ones to perish. It's like a shepherd that leaves his 99 that are in good shape and goes after the one that's wandering. We should be a people who have a posture towards wandering ones, towards little ones, towards humble ones, towards needy ones, and say, you have value. God loves you. God doesn't want you to perish. Is that our posture? Or do you have a line where you're like, nope, you no longer value to God. You no longer matter. What's that line for you? You've broken the law, you don't matter. You're small, you don't matter. You're kind of annoying, you don't matter. (laughs) What is it? What's the line for you? We all do this. We have categories of people that we're like, ah, those people don't matter. God says that they matter. Little ones matter to God. God has this compulsion to love and he invites us to be the same way, to pursue those who are wandering those who are lost. I grabbed a picture of a father rejoicing in a child. I think like throwing their kid up in the air. You have that picture? There it is. Yeah, swinging them around. This is funny. I just became a granddad. It is funny how men like throw children more than women. Is that a, like, why is that a thing? Have you ever wondered that? I don't know what that is. Um, but anyway, rejoicing, right? That's the point. It's not about throwing kids around. It's about rejoicing delighting. We have a heavenly father who delights in us. 
Do you understand that? Do you understand the magnitude of that, of a God who loves you? I think understanding that, understanding God's posture towards you, that he not only sent Jesus to take your sins and forgive you in a, in a very serious, important, debt-forgiven kind of way, but he delights in you. He rejoices in you. Do you recognize that God rejoices in you? The more that we recognize God's rejoicing in us, the more we will rejoice in others. I shared this before. I had a professor that used to call it the platinum rule, right? The golden rule is love others the way you want to be loved, right? The platinum rule is you will rejoice in others to the extent that you believe your heavenly father rejoices in you. Do you believe your heavenly father rejoices in you? You're going to rejoice over other people. We're going to build a culture where we rejoice in the humble, where we care for the outsider, where we pursue the wanderer. That's what God is calling us to. We often call this process of going after a wanderer or going after a struggler, we call it evangelism, um, which is kind of a strange word because it's a taking a Greek word, evangel, and turning it into an English word, right? So that Greek word is, is good news or gospel. So really, evangelism means a good newsification. That's what it means, right? Good newsification. So it means we go after people with good news, right? People are running from God because they think he's an ogre that hates them and wants to spoil their fun. And we're coming after him going, no, 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 no. You're running off a cliff, and God loves you and wants you to bring you into his family. He sent Jesus to die for you. He sent Jesus to give you resurrection life. He's pursuing you in love. He rejoices over you. That's good news. That's what the Greek word evangel means. That's what the old English word gospel means. Good news. That's what we have. Are we sharing it? Are we pursuing people? And of course, there's a nuance to that, right? We don't, we don't just go yelling it at people. We have to get to know people. We want to understand people. We want to speak it in a language they can understand. One of my favorite phrases about sharing the good news with someone was Francis Schaeffer said, if I had one hour to share the good news of Jesus with someone, I'd spend 55 minutes asking them questions and then five minutes explaining God's love and what Jesus had done for them. Because we really need to understand people. We need to understand where they're coming from. We need to understand uh, the method of self-salvation and greatness they're pursuing so that we can translate the good news into a language that makes sense to them. I think that's a great way to proceed. Are you taking time to get to know people? Are you listening? Are you grieving with them over what they grieve over? And are you celebrating with them over what they celebrate? But then coming finally to a point where you say, man, I want to affirm this. I don't want to grieve with you over that. But I have good news. There's something more. There's something missing. There's a God who comes from the outside. This box you've been living in is not all there is. This world you've known is not all there is. We know a God that came into our world, that left heaven and came to earth. And so I just want to end with that as we wrap up about how to become great. Let's, let's look again at Jesus, right? Let's look one more time at Jesus. Paul says about Jesus in Philippians 2, Jesus is the greatest. Uh, what's that phrase I see on the internet? Goat, the greatest of all time, right? Jesus is the ultimate. He is the greatest of all time. Philippians 2 says it this way. God has highly exalted him. That Greek word is like uh, super-supered, right? It's like 
exalt exalted. It's like he's the super exalted one. He is the greatest. If you want to know greatness, look at Jesus. He's the greatest of all time. God bestowed on him the name that is above every other name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Jesus is the greatest. You want to be great? Look at Jesus. And Paul says, this is the process by which Jesus became great. You want to become great like Jesus? Well, here's how Jesus did it. Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not account account quality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself. He humbled himself. He took the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He gave himself up. And so Paul says, Every piece of advice on how we should live as followers of Jesus is based on that, what Jesus did. That's how Jesus became great. He humbled himself. So Paul says at the beginning of that section in Philippians, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others, having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. That's the only way we'll ever proceed. The only way we'll ever be great in the sense of being humble and serving others, the only way we could possibly do that is by looking at Jesus first. It's by saying, Jesus did that for me. That's what changes our heart. That's what changes our mind. That's what sets us right with all those questions of, but what if this happens? How can I do that? How can I survive? How can that really work, Jesus? We look at Jesus and we see that he did that for us. And it works. And that turn of heart is then what changes us to be able to turn and say, Jesus, save me. I see that you gave yourself for me. Forgive me. Make me new. Adopt me into your family. And then begin to make me into the kind of person that has the same mindset that you had as well. Let me pray for us. God, thank you that you love us so much that you sent us Jesus. And God, we, we pray that we would come to terms with the ways that we rebel against this, that we push back against this, so many ways that our world tells us that this doctrine doesn't sound kosher or right or okay. This teaching seems wrong. We're hemmed in from the limits of how we normally see things. God, we thank you that as we read the stories of Jesus, we see a Jesus who is unafraid to turn our worldviews upside down. And so once again, we offer our worldviews to you. We say, this is how I normally see things. Will you teach me to see things right? We thank you that you do that because you love us. So God, as scary as it is to have our worldviews turned upside down, we confess like little children, we do not know what's right, but you do. And so we ask you to teach us and remake us that we would love you and love others. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.